Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And we thank you that, that even though as we look at the tabernacle that you instituted several thousand years ago, we thank you for the clear picture of your son that we see in the tabernacle. And Lord, I just pray that as we look at the Old Testament, that it would just be exciting to us as we see the clear picture of you and who you are. And Lord, the blessing to know that it applies to each one of our lives here tonight. I pray for each person who's here, Lord, just that you would meet them right where they are. Just touch their hearts, Father God, strengthen and encourage them in their walks with you. Those who might be hurting or seeking direction, Father, I pray that you would speak to them tonight. So Lord, we love you and we praise you. You are a great and an awesome God. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Exodus 25. Now in Exodus 20 to 23, as we saw, we saw the Lord give the Ten Commandments to Israel. And the Ten Commandments, remember it was a major production when God did it. He wanted to make sure they understood how significant these commandments were. Almighty God appeared on the mountaintop and we know that there was thunderings and lightnings and His voice came down from the mountain and made it very clear that these commandments were from Him. There was no doubting that it was from God. It wasn't Moses' opinion, it was the Word of God. And they cried out initially saying, we're going we're to listen to all that you say. And we know that right after Him giving the Ten Commandments, we've talked about this, that they built an altar... He told them to build an altar, and he told them not to make it out of gold or silver, not to hewn the rock, because the focus needs to be on the sacrifice and not the altar. Just like today, the focus should not be on the building or the church, then the focus needs to be on Jesus. Then, then in chapters 21, 22, and 23, we saw the Lord instituting statutes for Israel on how to live everyday life. And he gave them some very clear and direct instruction for how they were to live. There was no government at that point, in a sense, and God had to govern them. And so he gave them the law. And then last week we saw Israel make a covenant with God. Moses delivered to them God's word. The people promised to obey it. Then there was a blood sacrifice that was made. And then they drew near and witnessed the glory of God. Remember a couple things that we talked about last week was how that God gave the word on stone tablets. And it's awesome to me that the stone tablets or the rock, whenever you see it in the Bible, the rock points to who? Who's the rock? Jesus. Who's the chief cornerstone? Jesus. So when we see that the, the Word, and who's the Word? Jesus. So the Word was written on the rocks, or the stone tablets, and again, a very clear picture of Christ, so that the law showed us our need for a Savior. We also saw that when they went up onto the mountain the last time to see the Lord, that He took Joshua with Him. We talked about how that Moses is a picture of the law, and how Moses, remember, did Moses enter the promised land? Yes or no? Answer is no. Why? Because he smote the rock. Right? We talked about Jesus being the rock. And when he smote the rock, when he's supposed to speak to the rock, it was a picture of him beating our Savior a second time. The first time he was to smote the rock, the second time he was just to speak to the rock. And he didn't. He smote the rock. And because of that, he was not going to be able to enter into the land of promise. So we know that this time that, who, what, that the person who brought him into the land of promise was Joshua. Joshua's name is the same name, Yeshua, as Jesus. And it's interesting to me that Moses, the representation of the law, could not bring man into the land of promise, but Jesus could. Amen? Joshua brought them into the land of promise. Why? Because of grace, not because of the law. And that's how God's perfect plan, as we see it in the Old Testament. It's also interesting to me that when he went up on the mountain, Moses, representation of the law, that he took Joshua, or the same name as Jesus, with him because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. And it's interesting that they went up on the mountain together before they would speak to the Lord. And so tonight we're going to move on, and we're going to see, I titled the message, Almighty God Dwelling with Man. And we're going to see the institution of the tabernacle. Now a lot of times, people just, they go, what? Oh, we're going to read about the tabernacle, a bunch of furniture and instruments and a place and you know and you know what I love the Old Testament and I love the Bible because when you look at each one of these these instruments or these furnishings or the tabernacle itself there's no way you cannot see Jesus if your eyes are open if you have the Holy Spirit in any way shape or form influencing your understanding you'll clearly see the son of the living God and I love that and so this tabernacle is going to be put together and we'll see that tonight the primary focus of the rest of Exodus, the last 15 chapters, is really all about the construction of the central place of worship for the nation of Israel, and again, it would be the tabernacle. Now, chapters 25 through 31 that we'll be going through for the next several weeks 
is just God giving directions on the building of the tabernacle. And later in chapters 35 to 39, we'll actually see them building it. So tonight, all we're going to see is the instruction that God gives to Moses. But we're going to see that in that instruction, we'll see a clear picture of our Savior. We'll begin to look at the materials and the furnishings of the tabernacle. We'll see that it symbolizes God dwelling among, among His people. We'll see that it's a place of sacrifice, a place of restoration, a place of, of uh, ministry, and a place of intimacy with God. Now, I, I mentioned to you that it points to Christ. And here's some things that, that I just saw and I wrote down this afternoon as I was studying that are parallels between the tabernacle and Christ. And, and certainly this is a very short list of what could be an extremely long list. The first thing I wrote down is it's a temporary dwelling. The tabernacle is a tent. And the word tabernacle means to dwell. That's what it means. And it's interesting that it was temporary, that as they wandered through the wilderness, they would literally pick up the tabernacle and move it with them everywhere they went and reset it up and tear it down and set it up. But it was temporary. The temple was much more permanent, even though it wasn't ultimately permanent, but the tent was temporary. And it's interesting that Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, and he was here for 33 years. And his ministry to us on earth was temporary. Second of all, we see that it was used in the wilderness. And it's interesting that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. He had no place to lay his head, the Bible says, just as they were wandering in the wilderness. He freed mankind from bondage and sin, and that's exactly what the tabernacle was pointing to, being freed from bondage and sin. They wandered aimlessly separated from God, and we know that God would use the tabernacle to point them back to the coming Messiah. The tabernacle was very humble in appearance. The tabernacle was no special thing from the outside. As we're going to see as we go through the chapters, it was, it was, the outsides of it was made with skins, and they were dark in color. So it was, it was, it was a dark-looking tent. Nothing special from the outside. But when you went on the inside, whoa, pretty awesome. And you know what? The Bible says that Jesus was of no great appearance. It says in Isaiah 53, he was... You know, nothing to behold as far as his outward looks. But you know what? As we saw in the Mount of Transfiguration on the inside, whoa, right? So just like the tabernacle, the outward was pretty mundane, but once you got on the inside, it was pretty awesome. And the same is true of our Savior. Outwardly, he was nothing to behold, but inwardly, pretty awesome. And then, uh, extremely awesome in his case. Lastly, we'll see picture of the heavenly things. As we go through the tabernacle, it will really be a picture of heaven for us. We'll really see a lot of things in the tabernacle that point to what will be coming in the future. So here are the four things we're going to look at tonight. First of all, offerings for the sanctuary. We're going to look at, the, at three of the furnishings. The Ark of the Covenant, the Table of Showbread, and the Golden Lampstand. Okay? And I promise you, it'll open your eyes if you've never really looked at this before. So let's begin in verses 1 through 9. Offerings for the sanctuary, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they may bring an offering from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart. You shall take my offering. It's interesting that God is going to use sinful man and allow them to have an active part in building the tabernacle. And I love the fact that God allows sinful men and women like you and me to take part in his awesome eternal work. And that's what's happening here. And he's going to basically choose these men. And it's interesting to me that the same thing happens today. Jesus sent his son to pay the price that you and I could not pay. He suffered and died in our place. He adopts us into his family. He blesses us with all that we have. And then he still chooses to work through us by us just simply giving back to him what he gave to us to begin with. And then he gives us rewards for us giving back to him what he gave to us to begin with. What an awesome God we serve. Amen? He's not looking, you know, for ability but availability. He's not looking for, for people to do great things because of our great abilities. He's just looking for people to say, Lord, I want to serve you with my whole heart. And here he calls out and says, you know what? I want those who have a, a good heart, those who give cheerfully. You know, the Bible talks about us giving with hilarity. You know what? We should be excited to give. Not giving because somebody twisted my arm and pressured me to give. If you ever give because you feel like you have to, don't. You give because you want to, because you love to. You know what? Nobody has to break my arm for me to go out and buy things for my family. I love to buy things for my family. I love to, to go out and get something really special that I know that they want and surprise them with it. It blesses me. Why? Because I love them. But all the more reason, shouldn't I be that way with God since He's the one that gave it to me to begin with and it all belongs to Him anyway? You know, the only thing that's going to outlast this life 
are the things that we do for the kingdom of God. An offering from everyone who gives it willingly, voluntarily, freely. The people were given opportunity to personally contribute to the construction of the temple. And true giving, I want to say this, true giving comes from the heart, not the wallet. Amen? It's not about, we talked about this on Sunday, it's not the, pro, it's not the portion you give, it's the proportion, right? Remember the widow's mites, we just looked at it on Sunday? She gave one-eighth of a cent. And God said she's given more. Jesus said she's given more than anybody else here. Everybody else played the trumpets and poured it all the change and had everybody look at how wonderful they were. And she'd given more. Why? Because she gave out of her lack where, he gave out, where the others gave out of their abundance. abundance. It's interesting. How much would you give today? Just think about this. I thought about this myself. We know this won't happen because it can't. But can you imagine if somebody, if, if God had a revelation in His Word and Jesus Christ was going to be in... Louisiana, for, and is going to speak at some stadium for an hour, how much money would you spend to get there? I'd sell my house. I would do whatever I have to do. I, are you kidding me? I'm going, man. I'm going to be, I, I'll walk. I mean, I'm going, right? I mean, why? Because we would just, win. I want to see Jesus, right? I want to have a, I want to draw near to him. I'll do it. I don't care what it, I'll worry about that later. I mean, this is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the alpha and the omega. You know, the sad part about it is that every time we come to church, we should be coming to see Jesus. Amen? And we should be coming early, not, not after worship's over, right? I mean, we're coming to see the Lord, and we, you know, if I was going to leave, I'd get there a couple days early, and I'd be camping out, and I couldn't wait to see Him, right? And sometimes what we do is we, we make God a secondary. But here it's saying, you know, you give for the Lord's dwelling place. How much would you give to bless Jesus if He were here? If Jesus were coming to your house, what room would you put Him in, right? I mean, Lord, you have all of it. Take, Lord, here. I mean, you'd give Him everything, right? And it's saying here that, those who heartily give to help build me a dwelling place. And you know what's awesome? When you get to chapter 36, you find out that these people who we know blow it, they make golden calves and everything else, they, these guys are knuckleheads for the most part. But you know what? In chapter 36, it says that they gave so much that Moses had to tell them to stop giving. You know, we got too much. There's too much. You've given too much. There's too much gold. There's too much silver. There's too much linen. I can't... Stop giving. Have you ever heard that at church before? Right? Stop giving. They're just giving. You guys are giving way too much. But at least these guys heard that. And we, we need to have that heart. We're not giving to a man. We're not giving to a ministry. We're giving it to the Lord. And you know what? This is for His dwelling place. And you know what? It's to reach people for His kingdom. You know what? When we give, we become more like God. What do you mean? John 3.16 says that, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. So what did He give for us? He gave everything. So when we give, and, you, and all of you, anybody who's been here more than once, you know I'm not about money. I don't want your money. That's not the thing at all. But you know what? We need to have hearts that give. That give of our time. That give of our abilities. That give back what already belongs to God anyway. Not so that we can build a ministry, but so that we can put proportion on our priority in our own lives of what's really important. So he calls them out and says, Those who want to give, you take my offering, and it's going to be given to bring the, for the glory of God and for His dwelling place. Verse 3. And this is an offering which you shall take from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue, purple, and scarlet thread. Fine linen and goat's hair. Ram skins, dyed red. Badger skins, acacia wood. Oil for the light. Spices for the anointing oil. And for the sweet incense. Onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. So they were going to be giving things that were specific. Now this reminds me of something. When I lived in Lancaster, we bought this, or we leased this empty shell of a strip mall building. It was in an uh, industrial complex, and the place was gutted, and there was nothing in it. And so what we had to do is we had to build all the children's classrooms, and we had to build the sanctuary, and we had to carpet it and put heating in and do the whole thing. And it was awesome to me to see this church where all these guys were showing up, and I repeatedly, I was one of the assistant pastors, and, and guys would go and bring stuff, and I'd go up and say, hey, why don't you give us the receipt because we want to reimburse you. And over and over and over again, guys would say, you know what, God put on my heart, I'm just supposed to pay for the lighting. You know, God put on my heart, I'm just supposed to pay for the insulation. You know, God put on my heart, I'm just supposed to pay for the carpet. You know, here's the car, I don't want any money for it. And it was amazing to me, God had worked on these people's hearts, and it was interesting that by the time we were done, we spent like 10% of what we thought we were going to have to spend because God had put on individuals' hearts to come and bring the stuff that was necessary, and within literally two weeks of guys working every night of the week till midnight and working on weekends, that place was ready to move into. 
And it was awesome. And I thought about this. It says, these are the specific things that are needed for God's dwelling place. And he says, have them bring these things. Now, it's interesting to me. These guys are wandering in the wilderness. Where in the world would they be getting gold? Where would these guys be getting silver and onyx stones? Where are they going to get fine purple and linen? Who remembers where they would have got this stuff? In Egypt. Remember when they left Egypt, they'd been in bondage. And what happened was God not only delivered them from Egypt, but He then provided for them by blessing them, delivering them from the bondage, and then giving to them the spoils of Egypt as provision. So what is God asking back from them? What is He asking them to give? Just a portion of what He had given them. Isn't this a picture of tithing and offerings today? He had given them everything they had. All the gold they have, who gave it to them? God did. When they left Egypt, He just poured it all out on them. And now He's just simply saying, I want you to give back so that I might have a dwelling place. Give back a portion of what I've blessed you with. And that's exactly what we do when we give to the Lord today. They've been in bondage to Egypt. He had delivered them. And now they had an opportunity to give back to God. Once it... We too, each one of us in this room, every one of you was one time, maybe you still are, you're in bondage to sin. Every one of us. And the good news is that Jesus Christ, through His shed blood on the the cross, paid the price for our sin. And because of that, I've been given the gift, given the gift of eternal life. I didn't earn it. We're going to talk about that in a minute as we go through the tabernacle. It was nothing I did. It was everything He did for me. And all I did was receive that gift from Him. You know what? I can't give him enough just to, to pay back for what he's already done. Amen? And he doesn't want me to pay him back because he loves me. But you know what? Out of that great gift that he's given me, I ought to have a heart to give him my life. Not just my finances or my time, but to say, Lord, it all belongs to you. You've given me everything. You've given me my breath. You've given me life. You've given me eternity in heaven. How much? What can I give you? There's nothing I can give that would be enough. He simply asks us to give back to him out of love, not out of duty from the abundance through which He has already blessed us. Verse 8. According, it says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Now the word sanctuary literally is holy place. And let me just say this. Any place where God is, is a holy place. Amen? Any place where God is. So guess what? This is a holy gymnasium. Amen? Because the Lord's here. Where two or more... He's here, amen? He's here in our midst. So this is a holy place. But you know what else that means? Where does the Holy Spirit take residence? Where is it? It's in you guys. So guess what? You are holy. Not because of what you've done, but because of who you are in Christ. Amen? I've had people say that to me, man. What, are you some kind of holy roller? Well, by the grace of God, absolutely. Yeah, I am. Not because of what I've done, but because of what He's done for me and in me and what He desires to do through me. So we've been made holy. He says, be ye holy for I am holy. And He's made us holy. Amen? Any place that God dwells is holy. God won't be there if it's not holy. Why is it that there will be no sin in heaven? Because God would never allow it. God cannot have sin in His presence. He's perfect, holy God. And anywhere that He is, there can be no sin. And that's why that all of us as sinners must have our sin paid for or we can't go to heaven. One sin in heaven, we'd have earth part two. And so that can't happen. And so wherever God is, is holy. And he says, you make me a sanctuary, which means holy place, that I may dwell with you. And that's where the word tabernacle comes from. Tabernacle means dwelling place. What an awesome thing. Any place where God dwells is holy. Then I may dwell with you. In verse 9, and it says, according to, you that I sh- according to all that I show you, that is, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the furnishings, just so you shall make it that I may dwell with you according to the pattern of what I show you. Now, I want you to see this. I'm just going to take a moment, and we're going to get to this in the coming weeks, but I want to just walk you quickly through the tabernacle and give you an idea of what you would see if you were to walk into the tabernacle today. I feel kind of bad. They had the tabernacle over at Calvary San Jose. Did did that happen? No, it never happened. Okay. Because I got a flyer for it, and I saw that flyer in my Bible the other day, and I was like, oh, I wanted to see that, so now I don't feel so bad. I'll get to see it in April. But here's the thing. The tabernacle, again, is from the noun to dwell, and its furnishings each give a clear picture of what is necessary to restore sinful man back to holy God. Now, here's how it looked. The tabernacle was a tent. 
was basically 150 feet long by 75 feet wide. You would walk into the outer court, and the first thing that you would see is an altar of burnt offering, where you would come and you would sacrifice animals. Remember, we've seen this throughout the Old Testament, firstborn spotless lambs, oxen, when they would sacrifice them, and those sacrifices pointed to what? To Jesus, to the coming Messiah. Now, after you pass the altar of burnt offering, you would come to what is called the laver, or a wash basin. And in that wash basin, you would take the, you know, they'd spread the blood, and the blood had been sprinkled on the altar, and their hands would be covered in blood, and they would go in and cleanse themselves. So after the shedding of blood would come the cleansing at the laver. This is all in the outer court, all right? A picture of what happens to us today through the shedding of blood is remission of sins. We've been made clean in Christ. Baptism is not necessary for cleansing, but it is a picture of what has already been done, that we've been made clean through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And then you would come through there, and you would come past that to what is called the holy place. Now, that was a tent inside of the tent. It was only 15 by 30. It was pretty small. And you'd go inside that holy place, and in there were three different furnishings. We're going to look at two of them tonight. The first thing that you would run into on your right-hand side would be the showbread. We're going to talk about this in more detail, but it represents the bread of presence. It's 12 loaves pointing to the 12 tribes. On the left-hand side, you would see the lampstand. The lampstand looks like the menorah does today. It's where, that's what the word is for lampstand in the text, is menorah. That's what Israel uses as a symbol today. And on it are seven lampstands, seven candle, you know, stands, and seven branches, if you would. Six branches and the main branch that come out of it. And you would see that to the left, and that's the pictures we're going to see of Jesus being the light of the world. It's what illuminated that holy place. And in this is a place of ministry, the showbread, the presence of God, the lampstand, the light of the world. And then you would move on, and you would come to the altar of incense. Now, what is the burning of incense a representation of in the Bible? It's prayer. We, we burnt incense. It's a picture of praying before the Lord. And so you would come past the place of burnt offering, past the place of being cleansed, into that holy place of ministry. We have the showbread, the presence of God. You have the lampstand on the left-hand side. Jesus is the light of the world. He's called us too to be the light of the world. You'd go to that place of incense where you'd burn the incense, and beyond that, you have the holy of holies. There's a, a veil later in the temple, or a curtain in this case, and it was not to be entered into. And on the other side was the Ark of the Covenant that we're going to look at in detail tonight. And so, as you walk through, it's a, every piece of furniture points to Jesus. You know, incense points to praying unto the Lord. The lampstand points to the fact that He is the light of the world. The showbread represents the fact that He is the bread of life, and that He's the presence. Amen? The laver, the baptism, the washing away, the cleansing of sin, picture of Christ. The, the altar that you pass by, and you know what, even more so than that, is going to be the Ark of the Covenant that we're going to look at next. So as you walk through the... the tabernacle, it's a picture of God dwelling with us, but the interesting part is that the only way that God can dwell with us is if our sins have been forgiven. Amen? There's no other way that we can dwell with Him unless our sin has been washed away. It's interesting that the word that they use for God's presence is kabod. Have you ever ever heard of that word before? It means glory. The glory of God dwells there. That's an awesome thing. So now we're going to move on, and we're going to look, and, and it's interesting because one of the names of Jesus is Emmanuel, right? Which means what? God with us. And you know what? That's what this dwelling place was pointing to. God is here. But how will, God, how will they see God? How will they know the presence of God? How will this point to God? Let's look at the Ark of the Covenant, beginning of verse 10. And they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half shall be its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and out you shall overlay it and shall make it on a molding of gold all around. So this ark is not the ark like the boat, okay? You know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, he wasn't looking for a boat, was he, right? Okay, this is the Ark of the Covenant. And it was only 45 inches. That'd be, yeah, it'd be hard to get a lot of animals in a 45-inch by 27-inch box. But that's what the ark was. Wouldn't give me too many elephants in there. But so the Ark of the Covenant is this, is this box. And it's made out of acacia wood. Now it's interesting that acacia wood is the only wood in the wilderness that grows that has thorns. Now thorns are a type or picture of what in the Bible? What is it? Sin. Remember? What, what did they put on our Savior's head when he was crucified? A crown of what? Thorns. A representation or a picture of sin. Gold in the Bible 
is a picture of deity. Wood is a picture of humanity, and thorns are a picture of sin. And it's interesting that you take this acacia wood, they take this wood, and they cover it with gold. Humanity and deity all wrapped up in one. And you know, that's who Christ is, 100% man and 100% God. Amen? They didn't make it of pure gold, although they do the implements later, but they make it of wood and of gold, a picture of Jesus Christ. It's interesting also that this acacia wood, I was looking this up, the Bedouin people today still take acacia wood and they cut it open. And it has this gummy substance on the inside. It's kind of like aloe vera. And it's a substance that you put on wounds and it heals your wounds. Isn't that interesting? That the piece of wood that they used to make the Ark of the Covenant that points to Jesus Christ is covered with thorns that point to sin, but at the same time when broken open, it has a healing agent. And isn't that what Jesus came to do? To heal every one of us? You know what? There's nothing in the Bible by chance. Everything that in here that's in here is from God. Verse 12. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on the four corners. Two rings shall be on one side and two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings of the sides of the ark and the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark and they shall not be taken from it. Now, this is going to be significant when we get to later chapters, but when they carried the ark, they were never to touch it. They had rings on the four sides of the ark. This ark was a, a, a box, this size box or so. And then they had, we're going to see some more details about it in a minute, but had these poles on the sides that were made out of gold, and they were to carry it by the poles, and they were to never touch the ark. Now we know the story later where they put the ark on a cart, and they're pushing it on a cart, and it starts to fall off the cart, and one of the priests reaches out and grabs a hold of the ark to keep it from falling, and what happens to him? He gets struck down dead. You know why? You're never to touch the ark. You know why? We're never to touch the glory of God. Amen? We're never to touch His glory. It's His glory. And you're to carry it by the pole. So God's giving them clear instruction because he, He's God. And he, want, and he doesn't want harm to come to them. And He wants them to understand. So these rings are put upon it. Now it says there in verse 16, And you shall put into the ark the testimony which I give you. Now what's the testimony? What is that? The Ten Commandments. He says, oh, in the ark you're going to put the Ten Commandments. The law is going into the ark. Inside of this box will be the law. Now it's interesting when you look at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, there were two more things that were in the ark. Does anybody know what those things were? What's that? Aaron's rod and jar of manna. Very good. So there's a jar of manna and Aaron's rod, and the Ten Commandments. Now it's interesting to me that manna is a representation of God's daily provision, and it's a picture of Jesus again because He is what? The bread of life, and this was the daily bread that came down from the sky that was pointed to Jesus. The bread was white, it was round, pointing to His perfection. It was white, pointing to His holiness, and that's what manna was. It's also interesting that Aaron's rod was put in there. Who was Aaron? He's Moses' brother, and what position did he have? He was the high priest. And so we have the law, and we have the manna, and we have the rod that points to the high priest. Who does all of that? Remember the law I told you, the stones with the word, who's that point to? Jesus. Who does the manna point to? Jesus. And who does the rod point to? Jesus. And those are the items that were within the ark. So inside the ark, we saw the law. The law could not save us, but everything that was in the law pointed to the Savior. Now it says the rest of this, move on to verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half shall be its width. Now the mercy seat was basically a lid for the ark. When all those items were put into the ark, the mercy seat was placed upon the top of it, and it was closed down tight. And so the mercy seat took the law and the manna and the rod of Aaron into the ark, and close them down tight. Now, we know that the mercy seat is going to become the place of atonement. When the, when the high priest on Yom Kippur, if anybody ever wanted to know what Yom Kippur is, they still celebrate it today, it's the day of atonement. When they would go into the Holy of Holies at one time a year, and they would take the blood of a firstborn spotless lamb, and they would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Okay? And that was for atoning of our sins. And we know very clearly that that is pointing to the cross. 
Okay? So they have this mercy seat on top of the ark, and they're sprinkling the blood. But along, along with the, the gold mercy seat, there was something else on top of the ark. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work. You shall make them of two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end, and the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it, of one piece with the mercy seat. So attached to the mercy seat are cherubim. Cherubim are what? They're angels. Now what's interesting, if you go to Ezekiel chapter 1 or Ezekiel chapter 10 or Revelation chapter 4, you will see a very detailed uh, relation of cherubim. You'll get a better understanding of who they are, especially in Ezekiel. All right? Now, they're on the mercy seat, and these angels, these cherubim, are facing each other. So it's interesting that they're facing each other, the mercy seat's in the middle, as we're going to see the glory of God, the Bible says, dwelt above the mercy seat. So the angels are literally facing in to where the glory of God dwells. And here's the mercy seat, the place of atonement, and the kabod, the glory of God, is dwelling there. Now it's awesome to me, because what's happening in heaven? If you go to Revelation, and you look, and you see what's happening in heaven, the Bible talks about the fact that the angels are around the throne of God, worshiping Him day and night. Amen? Heavenly host, that's what the Bible says. So when you look at the mercy seat, you see a picture of heaven. And we see it very clearly here as we look at this place where they're going to have around the throne of God. Where here they're going to make sacrifice. Verse 21. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony I have given you. And there I will meet with you. I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything which I will give to you in commandment to the children of Israel. God's presence dwelt above the mercy seat. God will meet us in the place of mercy. You notice that God doesn't meet them in the place of the law. He doesn't meet them in the place of the commandments. If there were no mercy seat, God could not meet man there. Why? Because the law does not save us. It just reveals to us that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Remember, we looked at this a few weeks ago in in Luke, where one man came, the Pharisee came and said, I thank you, God, that I am not like other men. Remember that story? And he looked at the other guy. And then next to him was a tax collector who beat his brow and would not even look up. What did he say? God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God meets us at the place of mercy. Not the place of works. Not the place of the law. Not the place of the good things that we do. But the place of mercy. Where He gives to us. Where He doesn't give to us what we deserve, which is separation from Him for all eternity. He meets us at the place of mercy. Now, I want to ask you a question. Why in the world did they build the ark first? Wouldn't you think you'd put the tents up and then you'd go in and put everything else in and you'd get to the holy, a holy place last? Wouldn't you put everything else up first and build it in secrecy? Wouldn't it be the last thing you put in? You know what? I believe that the reason that the ark was built first is because we don't work our way to salvation. We don't put up all the other things on our trek to the ark. It starts with the cross. It doesn't end there. Amen? That's where salvation begins. That's where it happens. It happens at the cross. We don't crawl on our knees 50 miles to get to the ark. We don't crawl on our our knees 50 miles to get to the mercy seat. We don't crawl on our knees 50 miles to get to the cross. The cross is where salvation starts. And so the first thing we see that he talks about is the place where the glory of God would dwell. The kabod. It's interesting. Manna. Jesus, God's provision. Aaron's rod, the priestly line. Jesus is the high priest. Now it's interesting that, again, we talked about how the contents would condemn a man, but the glory above it would forgive a man. You know, later you're going to see a thing where someone says if they looked into the ark, what happens to them? Struck down dead. Why? Because they're looking at the commandments without the mercy. You remove the mercy seat, and guess what? You're dead. The law will kill you. But with mercy, you can have forgiveness. Now it's interesting to me, think about this for a second. Easter Sunday morning, when they ran to the tomb, when they came in and Jesus had been risen from the dead, we see, when you look at all the gospel accounts, that there were two angels, one at the top and one at the bottom of where Jesus had been laying. And you know what would have been in the middle? What was left of his blood-stained clothes, the linen, right? He had bled through through his clothes, right? So what you saw was an angel on one side, an angel on the other, 
and a slab in the middle with blood. What's that a picture of? Isn't that the ark? Isn't that the mercy seat? So this mercy seat with these cherubim are a picture of heaven where they're around the throne of God, worshiping God forever, but it's also a picture of the resurrection. Because you see these angels facing one another and the blood is being sprinkled on the mercy seat. And here we see that very clearly when you go to the tomb. Gotta love the Old Testament. Again, faith is not in the ark. And we're going to see as we go through the Old Testament that Israel is going to have a lot of faith in the ark. They're going to go grab the ark a couple times and put their faith in it. That's what the Bible says. And they're going to run out and try to beat the, defeat the Philistines with the ark. Let's take the ark out there. Yeah, let's get it. Let's go. And they, they, find, they put their faith in the ark. Our faith should never be in the ark or the symbols or the rituals. Our faith must be in that which the ark points to. And that's Jesus Christ. Amen? That's who our faith is in. So we move on to the table of showbread. Verse 23. You shall also make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its width, and a cubit and a half its height. So basically this table is roughly 36 inches long, 18 inches wide, and 27 inches tall. You shall make for it a frame of a handbreadth all around, and you shall make a gold molding for the frame all around. You shall make it for four rings of gold, and put the rings on the four corners that are on its four legs, and the rings shall be close to the frame as the holders of the poles to bear the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood, overlay them with gold, that the table may be carried with them. You shall make its dishes, its pans, its pitchers, and its, its bowls for pouring, and you shall make them out of pure gold. And you shall set the showbread on the table before me always. Now, what is the showbread a picture of? Again, who is the bread of life? Jesus. Okay? It points to the presence of God. There are 12 loaves representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And so when they would come in, the bread would sit there all week long. And on the Sabbath, it's interesting that the presence of God or the fellowship, that's what it represents, fellowship with God, presence of God, God being there. They would come in and they would take that bread of presence and the priest, that's what they would eat. On the Sabbath, they would bake more bread, bring it in, and take the old bread out, and that's what they would eat. Now, it's interesting to me that with fellowship, with the presence of God, that then they would be fed, right? The very thing that, with the fellowship that they have with God, would produce something that would feed them. And the same is true with us. When you have fellowship with God, don't you get fed? Amen? Isn't that how you get fed spiritually? People say to me, well, I just don't get fed there. I'm like, you you must not be in fellowship. I'm just not getting fed. Well, you're not in fellowship. Because when we're in fellowship, we are going to grow spiritually. When we're spending time in the presence of God, we are going to get fed every single time. The problem that we have is we don't spend enough time with the Lord. You know, if you're struggling in your walk, it's not God's fault. Amen? People want to blame God all the time. Like, God, you know, God, I'm just not as close to God as I used to be. Well, who moved? Amen? God's still there. It was you. And the same is true here. When you draw near to God in the presence of God, then we get fed. And it's awesome to me to see that they were fed with the showbread which represented God's presence. You see that they fed with it in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 9. Results in being fed spiritually, being in the presence of God. Verse 31. And one thing I want to say, it says, And the table shall be with me always. Always a representation. God is always there for us. He loves us. Verse 31. You shall make also for me a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be a hammered work. Its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs, and flowers shall be of one piece. Now that doesn't maybe not sound like a big deal, but wait till I read you the detail of this. And if some of you might even have pictures of, of, of what it looks like in, the, in your Bible, I've got one in mine. And I'll tell you what, I'd hate to try to make this thing out of one piece. It says, And six branches shall come up out of its side, three branches of the lampstand out of one side, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other. So again, you have three branches coming out this way. If you've ever seen a menorah, three more coming out this way, and one in the middle. So you have seven. It's interesting that there are seven. Seven is the number of what in the Bible? Perfection or completeness, right? Pointing again to who? To Jesus Christ. Six is the number of man. How many of you do that? Six is the number of man. Why is, why is the Antichrist 666? It's the number of man, right? The unholy trinity, right? And the number of perfection or the number for the Lord is seven. Number of perfection, number of completeness. So on this lampstand, there are seven 
total branches. Again, the number of completeness. Look at verse 33. Three bowls shall be made like almond blossoms on one branch with an ornamental knob and flower and three bowls more like almond blossoms on the other branch with an ornamental knob and a flower and so for the six branches that come out of the lampstand. On the lampstand itself, four bowls shall be made like almond blossoms, each with its ornamental knob and flower. And there shall be a knob under the first two branches of the same, and a knob under the second two branches of the same, and a knob under the third two branches of the same, according to the six branches that extend from the lampstand. Verse 36. Their knobs and their branches shall be of one piece. All of it shall be one hammered piece of pure gold. Now, can you imagine making something that delicate and flowery and making out of one piece of pure gold? How much work must have gone into that? But it shows you that God has one way of doing things. We're going to see that in the last verse. And we don't, God gives us clear instructions. God is not up, you know, God doesn't, there's no question or doubt about what we should do when it comes to the way we live our lives. So often we're in doubt, but that's not because of God, it's because of us. God has given us clear direction for life. I was talking to a, a guy called me on the phone the other night while I was studying. And he was asking me questions. And one of the questions he asked me, so well, I got this girlfriend and we've been dating for a while. You know, I really want to take it to the next level. What do you think about that? I said, dude, that's sin. That's wrong. It's adultery. And God, God has no time for it. Oh, wow. That was pretty direct. I said, well, the Bible's pretty clear. Amen? There's no, the Bible doesn't say, well, you might want to maybe possibly think about considering this at some time in the future. You don't see that kind of language in the Bible. Now, we act that way, but that's not the way the Bible is. And God is giving very clear instructions to Israel and says, I want you to make it after the pattern that I have given you. You take what I've given you and you make it exactly this way. God is never ambiguous. He always gives us the clear answer. And we can always turn to Him. You know, the Holy Spirit is not the author of confusion. And I love that. And so... What did this implement do? It says, you shall make seven lamps for it, and they shall arrange its lamps so that they give light, give light in front of it. So what is the lamp's job to give light? Now, John 8, 12 says this. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The Bible also very clearly tells us, I'm going to read to you out of Matthew chapter 5, that we too are the light of the world. We're like the sun. We're like the moon to the sun. Amen? You know, he's the S-O-N, but in this case, just like the, the moon reflects the S-U-N, we ought to be reflecting the S-O-N. Why is the moon bright? Because the, su- the sun's shining on it. And why should we be bright? Because the sun should be shining on us. And here's what it says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine, so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We see here that, the, that this lamp is there to illuminate the holy place for the priests. And we are on this planet to illuminate and point people to Jesus Christ. Amen? We are called to be salt and to be light. We're called to be in the world, but not of the world. We're not, you know what? They were not attracted to Jesus because he was just like everyone else. I hear people say all the time that we need to, you know, we need to fit into the world. No, any dead fish can go with the flow, right? I mean, that's not what God's called us to do. God's called us to come out. Be ye separate. Be ye different. We're aliens here. And we're called to be halogen lights in the darkest place around. And if you live in Santa Cruz County, which most of you do, guess what? Doesn't get much darker than this place. Amen? And God's brought you here to be salt and light. I love Pastor Don's analogy that the, the light company doesn't take all the lamps and put them on one street corner in San Jose. If he did, he'd have this real well-lit corner and the rest of the place would be pitch black and it'd be car accidents everywhere. It'd be a disaster. They take the lights and they spread them all out and that's what God has done with each one of us. Some of you might say, well, I'm the only person in my workplace that's a Christian. Guess what? Divine appointment, God puts you there for a reason, and you're to be the light of that place. Amen? That's why you're there. Well, I'm the only person that, in my neighborhood that really loves the Lord. Oh, there it is. You're the light post in that neighborhood. God puts you there for a reason. You're salt and you're light. You know what? If, the, if all the Christians worked in the same building, that's kind of how it is in my office. We've got a lot of lights down there. But if all the Christians worked in one building, then who would reach the ones that didn't know God? The lamp was there to illuminate for the priests that they might see the holy place. 
the Holy of Holies. They were in the holy place that would illuminate to them to, to go to the Holy of Holies. That they would be able to, to find the Holy of Holies and go in and do the ministry that they were called to do. You know, it's interesting. We are to illuminate to people the Holy of Holies. We're to give them direction to that most holy place. We're to direct them to the mercy seat, to the cross of Christ. We're called to be salt and we're called to be light. It says there in verse 38, and its wick trimmers and their trays shall be made of pure gold. Now it's interesting to me that these guys, the priests we're going to see in later chapters, their job was to go in and make sure that the, that the light never went out. They had to go in and trim the wicks and fill it with oil and trim the wicks and fill it with oil and trim the wicks and fill it with oil and trim the wicks and fill it with oil. It was never, ever, ever to run out of light. And they used pure gold to even go in and trim the wicks. Now it's interesting to me that what does oil represent in the Bible? Holy Spirit. And we are called to be the light of the world. And you know what will keep our light from going out? Being empowered by, being filled with, being, having that dunamis, dynamite, Holy Spirit power. Amen? You want to be, shine a light bright to a lost and dying world, then you need to be seeking after, filled with, directed by, overflowing with, torrents of rushing living water pouring out of you of the Holy Spirit. Amen? And it's something we need. I pray every morning before my feet hit the ground, Lord, fill me afresh with your Holy Spirit. Guide and lead and direct my life today. Give me divine appointments. Help me to be salt and light for you. Help me not to, to turn away from an opportunity, Lord. Give me direction. Give me wisdom. Open up your Bible and let the Lord fill you through His Word. Don't let the light go out. One of my favorite songs as a little kid is, This is the light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. How many of you guys ever hear that song when you're in Sunday school? And then they say, hide it under a bush. Oh no, I'm going to let it shine, right? And don't let Satan blow it out. I'm going to let it shine. And you know what? That's a, you know what? some deep spiritual truth, a very simple song. That this is the light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. And the enemy would love nothing better than to hide you under a bush or to blow you out or have you be an undercover Christian. And you know what? That oil has got to be replenished. That's why we need to be in fellowship. Christianity is not for the Lone Ranger. Amen. Christianity is not, you know, you don't go off and hide by yourself somewhere and sit on a mountain and contemplate your navel, right? I mean, that's not what you do. As Christians, we are called by God. We've been saved by God. He wants us to use the gifts He's given us. He wants us to come that others may minister to us. And He wants us to come that we may use our gifts to minister to others. I'm preaching to the choir. You guys are here on Wednesday night. Why am I talking to you about this? Verse 39. It shall be made of a talent of pure gold, and, with all, and all, with all these utensils, a talent of pure gold was 75 pounds. So this is a pretty sturdy implement that they were putting in. In verse 40, And see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. The objects were to be, to, were to be made in the pattern God had given. There is no room for, for human improvising when it comes to spiritual truth. God's Word is the only pattern that we are to follow. We're not to try to be politically correct and spiritually corrupt by, by pandering to what people want. There's a lot of churches doing that today. You know what? They, they think you're narrow-minded if you say, well, the Bible says this, so that's the answer. Oh, well, wait a minute. You know, it's year 2002, man. Things are changing. No, that. Same yesterday, today, and forever, and aren't you glad? Amen? Our God doesn't change. People do. We get further away from God, but we, God doesn't change. And there's too, much, too many churches today that want to change the Bible. And, you know, there's a new, uh, Bill was telling me about this, the new NIV Bible that just came out. I want to toss my cookies, man. They take all the things that say him out and they make it non-gender specific to be politically correct with the world that we live in. So it goes from being, you know, God the Father to God the Supreme Being or something, I don't know. But how weak is that? They're being politically correct and watering down the gospel. He's saying, you know what? You do it according to the provision that I gave to you up on the mountain. You take the word I've given you and you be faithful to that. You don't water it down to please people. You don't change the rules. You know what? People quote the bylaws of their church and their church constitutions and they get away from this. You want to know the constitution of Calvary Chapel? is right here. Amen? We don't need any, any other stuff. This is it. This is the bylaws, this is the Constitution, this is it. It's the Word of God. This is what we stand on, nothing else. And it's sad to me, you see people drifting further and further away from the Word. They start saying, oh, we don't need that part of the Bible, let's take that out. He says, look, you follow the provision I gave you on the mountain. You pattern it perfectly after what I have given you. Don't use anything else as your authority. 
So the worship team will come on up. In conclusion, how can you and I dwell with intimacy with Almighty God? First, as we saw in the first part of the chapter, come first with a cheerful heart to give back to God out of the abundance of what He's provided for you. Give back to God from your heart. Say, Lord, I give you all. I told you that story of a man who told me that when a plate went by, he wanted to put himself in the basket, you know? And that should be our heart. Lord, I want to give you everything. Pastor Don says, you know, Christians don't tell lies, they just sing them, right? I surrender all, not really, you know. I mean, and that should be our heart. We really should be surrendering all. Second of all, remember that God's presence is found above the mercy seat, not in your ability to fulfill the testimony that's in the box. You know, it's in the mercy seat. It's in that place of mercy, coming with a broken heart, not saying, oh, I thank you, God, I'm not like this sinful man over here. I thank you, God, I'm not like other men. It's coming, beating your breast, and saying, God, forgive me. Have mercy on me, a sinner. We need to come with broken hearts before Him. Come and abide in His presence, like with the showbread. Draw near to Him. Spend time in His presence. You know, when was the last time? Don't answer this. Think about this yourself as we close. When was the last time you just hung out with Jesus and you weren't in a hurry? You just opened your Bible and went and got alone somewhere or went and got in your prayer closet or whatever it is and just spent time with the Lord, not looking at your watch or somewhere else to go, but just hung out with Him. When was the last time? Lord, we need to all do that more. Come desiring a constant filling of His Holy Spirit. Just like the golden lampstand. There was a constant oil being poured in there. We need to wake up every day and Lord say, fill me afresh. And why do we need to be filled again? Because we leak. Amen? We need to be filled again and again. We need to be filled to overflowing with His Holy Spirit so that your light might shine before a lost and dying world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. And I'm just excited, Lord, as we look at the, the tabernacle. Lord, that as they wandered in the wilderness, where they come and they would, the glory of God would, would abide. The kabod, Your glory. And Father, we desire just to have Your glory rest upon this place. And Lord, we know that it comes as we draw near unto You. Lord, as we're filled to overflowing with Your Holy Spirit, as we feed on Your Word, Lord, we thank You that You feed us from Your Word, that You are the bread of life. And Lord, I just ask for each one of us, Lord, that You would just help us, Father God, to, to be the men and women of God You've called us to be. Lord, to give to You, not just of our, our money or our time, but just to give You our lives, Lord. Lord, we can't give You back enough for what You've already done for us. So Lord, we love You. We thank You, Father God. Go with us even tomorrow and the days in the future. Just give us opportunities to share our faith and to be that light that's shining brightly to a county that's so desperate for You. So Lord, we love You. We thank You for Your Word. Just continue to minister to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's stand up and close a worship song.